Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks from Revelation 8 and 9 about turning our eyes to Jesus. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Amen. Victory. Welcome to church this morning. How are you doing, Impact? Everybody good? All right. So we're going to dive right in and get going in our uh, Revelation series that we've entitled The Overcomers, all right? Because we in Christ are overcomers, and especially this book of Revelation is pointing to people who even in the hardest of times are making a stand for God and will stand in victory with him along with all of us in Christ. So the message today as we um, fly our helicopter a little faster as we did last week over chapters 8 and 9 today, we're going to cover a lot and we're going to look at each individual topic. But the title of today's message is simply this, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Somebody that may have read ahead and read chapters 8 and 9 be like, how in the world did you get that title out of what's right there? Well, we're going to see how. Because overwhelmingly, that is the idea and the context behind everything we're about to read. God longs for people to turn their eyes, their hearts, their lives to him. So that's the title of today's message. You see, in our life, we're very familiar with the concept of people being hard-headed, right? A lot of us are hard-headed. Wives don't elbow your husbands, okay? We're we're used to hard-headed people. Maybe some of you would self-identify as, man, I'm hard-headed, right? So as such, sometimes we don't listen, can anybody identify with that? There's been times in my life where I didn't listen. Somebody told me something, and I was like, ah, right? And then most oftentimes, somebody that was giving me wisdom, somebody trying to tell me something, and, and then I did not do it, and then it, it came true, right? You ever been there? You ever been there, and you felt really hard-headed at that point? I'm like, man, if I would have just listened. Anybody getting a message already? You see, we're used to this in a lot of ways. Think about it in your finances, we're well aware that there's a, a wise way to spend your money, and there's an unwise way to spend your money. There's many people who try to uh, lay out uh, budgets and different things where to give you wisdom on how to not overspend, because the warning is, hey, if you don't spend your money wisely, you're going to end up in bankruptcy. You're going to end up in debt. You're going to end up not being able to do the things you want to do in life. In other words, if you don't listen, you're going to feel, okay? How about in relationships? You ever been there? Oh, honey, you shouldn't date that person, right? Ever been there? (laughs) Oh, you you really shouldn't, you know, look for your significant other in the bar and then wonder why one day they don't want to go to church, right? Not being unequally yoked. There's even wisdom in that in there. So, so a lot of times we're familiar with that. But here's the big one. Here's the glaring one. Because we'll be all familiar with this. How about your health? We're all familiar with how we should treat our bodies. The food and type of food we should put in it. The type of exercise. The amount of sleep. Everything that we know will keep our bodies healthy. We're all well aware of that. We live in an informed society. Okay, Nobody is, is dumb to that anymore. But how many of us do it strictly? (laughs) My hand's not up either, don't worry, okay? Look, so we know, but but if we don't listen, then what's the ramifications? Why should we take care of our body? Why should we eat right? Why should we exercise, get sleep? So that we don't have bad health. In other words, we should listen so we don't have to feel, okay? Oftentimes, if we don't listen to the warnings, to the, to the information that's given us, and we feel, then the doctor has to come and tell us, hey, you just had this 
heart attack. Hey, your blood work didn't come back right. You now have diabetes. You got to do this. Now, because we didn't listen, we feel. And now if we ignore it when we feel, what happens? Bad things, baby. (laughs) Bad things. Do you see where we're going? God has put forth his word and sacrificed his own son on a cross because he longs for us to hear and to listen and to repent and to live for him. He broke his body. He shed his blood. He endured God's wrath and took it all upon himself so that we could be set free if we would listen and then we won't have to feel. Have you surrendered all to Jesus? If not, turn your eyes to him today. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we're lost without you. Lord, we're dead in our trespasses, our our transgressions, Father, for there's nothing we can do on our own to be saved. Lord, we're thankful for the gift of your son. Let us not take it for granted. He endured your wrath. He took it all upon himself so that we could be set free. Why would we turn that down? Lord, so often it's because we don't want to listen. We don't want to submit and surrender to you. So Lord, help us today. Help us hear from your word that we can hear your heart. We can see your grace and your mercy even through times of judgment and fulfilling your promise upon purging all evil from the earth. Lord, there's still your grace, your heart, your mercy of calling people to you. Lord, don't let anybody leave here without getting their life right with you. Father, we long to seek you with our heart and our life, to fall under your grace and your mercy, to live under your authority of your word and the direction of your spirit, Father, that we could shine the light of Christ in the darkness. God, that's why we're here. So Lord, I pray that you would speak, that you would change hearts, minds, and lives like only you can. And only you get all the glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. If you have a copy of God's word, you can turn to chapter 8 in the book of Revelation. And we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 8. We won't read every single verse in chapters 8 and 9, but we will point to much of it that we need. But we will read these first six verses in this chapter and then eventually when we get to chapter 9. But starting first, chapter 8. Verses 1 through 6, Word of God says this. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I want you to think about that. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. All right, so obviously we've been going through this book and here all the way through uh, chapter six, we've got the first six seals of the book of Revelation, okay? So now there was this interlude chapter in chapter seven that we talked about last week. Now here again, we've come back to sequential order in the opening of the seventh Seal, And what we're going to see is this seventh seal open leads to seven trumpets. And then eventually with the seventh trumpet leads to the seven bowl judgments, okay, of God. So 
there's a, a place right here that we see this seventh seal opened and then something happens. Each time we saw that through the first six, what does the Bible say happened here at this seventh seal as soon as it was opened? Silence. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Silence in heaven. This place that was filled with praise and worship and glory and constant just praise of, of a holy God. Now when this seventh seal is opened, what? Silence for a half hour. And in terms of eternity, that doesn't seem very long, does it? But the significance of constant prayer and worship and praise to a holy God interrupted by something with silence is significant because it's pointing us to something, all right? Think about if in the middle of this sermon, I, I turned the page and just for five minutes, I was just completely silent. You'd be like, is he done? Oh, wait, what, what's happening? What, what's going on, right? It would be just a little, a little awkward maybe, wouldn't it? Think about everything that's been going on and now the seven seals open and this, it's an awestruck silence. Why? First of all, we're gonna see some prayers like incense are about to be offered up to God. So some of this silence may be in reverence to God and who he is, but I tell you, a lot of it is probably awestruck, just silence because of the known scroll that is now unrolled. And you can see the judgment of God to come and what's gonna happen. So there's a shift we're gonna see right here as we get into the seven trumpet judgments that are a little different than what we saw in the first six seal judgments, okay, of the tribulation. So what we have is when the first six seals were almost things that God allows, right? As each seal was opened, something was allowed to take place. The first rider, the Antichrist, was allowed to come on the scene. He had been restrained, the Bible says, until this point. Until the restrainer was released, then the lawless one will come, right? So we made sense of that. Then the second seal, of course, was the red horse, the red horse of war. And we talked about how essentially World War III to take place and what that would look like. We talked about the third seal, the black horse, right? And we talked about this famine and mass inflation that would come upon the earth likely as a result of the war and nuclear war that took place in the, in the front side of the tribulation. Then we had the pale horse, and we talked about how a quarter of the earth's population would be deceased through that. It was just almost like natural occurrences. We looked at the fifth seal. We talked about how the martyrs were there and the, the natural um, people that were giving their, their lives up for Christ to stand for him. The sixth seal, of course, which seemed sci-fi, but it didn't have to happen this way, but everything that was listed there pointed to a polar shift. The idea of what would happen if a, a large enough earthquake took place that it caused mass um, volcanic eruptions around the world and the earthquake so strong that it would actually knock the polar axis of the earth back, which could happen because the, the last earthquake in Indonesia uh, years ago was only a magnitude of nine only, that's strong, but that's not off the Richter scale, right? But it was nine, and it actually caused the, uh, caused the earth to wobble. And then we talked about how in Isaiah, that when Isaiah was looking at the end times, he actually stated this, said he saw the earth wobble and shake like a tent in a storm. You remember that? So we said, we saw how the sixth seal pointed to these um, events that could be explained with natural occurrences that God would allow. Now, we're going to see a shift to things that actually God's hand is directly in. So what it's gonna be similar to, so I can set the stage for us, and we're gonna talk about this, is it's very similar to the plagues in a lot of ways, and especially the reasons that come across Egypt. You learned about this story from the time you were this high if you've been in Sunday school, haven't you? All the plagues that come against Egypt, and we're gonna see that there's a lot of similarities in what God is trying to do with this. Okay, so the Bible says that John said right here in this passage that we just read that he saw these seven angels. He didn't just see seven angels. He saw these seven angels. These point to archangels. According to Jewish tradition, there are seven angels called archangels who stand constantly in the presence of God. We know two of their names, Michael and Gabriel, all right? Jewish tradition has the rest of their names. We're not privy to them in scripture by any means. But according to this passage, there might be some truth in that. He sees these seven angels standing in the presence of God. All right. 
we see that after this, that there's, these angels are active in offering up some incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Oftentimes in the Bible, that prayer and incense are associated because it gives the idea of a precious, pleasant aroma to God. I want you to think about that. The burning of the incense gave this uh, pleasant aroma to God. So do the prayers of God's people. God hears your prayers. Did you know that? In your prayer, you're talking to him as like a sweet aroma to God. He enjoys hearing from you. How often do you talk to him? He loves it. It's beautiful to him. So this incense, this prayer comes up from God's people. And what's their prayer? We looked at a little bit of it last time because we see that a lot of the martyrs were praying, Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood? And he said, the time has not yet come. Why would he say that? Until the last martyr takes place. In other words, God wanted people to get saved still. He could judge just in a, just a minute if he wanted to, but he's not that type of God. This doesn't bring him joy. What brings him joy is people turning to him and coming to him. That's why, and we're going to see even his grace in the midst of when his hands start to take an active role in fulfilling his promise on earth. What are some of the prayers of these saints? What are some of the prayers that we pray? What is the prayer that Jesus told us to pray? Think about this now. It says, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying? That God would fulfill his promises, that there would be a day and a time where his creation would be set back to the, the way that he intended it before sin. That's what you're asking for. That's it. That he would come and that he would purge evil and that, that all pain and sin would be eradicated and we could walk in the presence of God again. That's what you're asking for. And that's what's about to start to take place. It's the same thing, if you think about in Egypt, when Israel was in captivity and they were calling out to God because they were in such captivity and slavery. And God heard at the right time and intervened. We're going to look at that. Oftentimes in the Bible, especially through the Old Testament, the trumpet sounded an alarm, all right? Especially an alarm when, when battle was be about to take place and the enemy was about to be defeated. It also called an assembly of God's people together. It was a sign of victory. Okay, So we see that in Zephaniah chapter 1 where it says that even the day of the Lord, speaking about this, this time, this day, not just one day, but this time, this end times of the Lord, will be a day of trumpets and a day of battle cry. I want you to think about that. So these seven trumpets are the sounding of God's alarm during the great tribulation. What does an alarm do? It warns you, right? Warning. What? I mean, come on, wake up. Wake up. For those of you who are sleeping, I am real. I'm alive. I am God. Would you turn to me? If you look at the, the plagues and you look at some of these trumpets, trumpet judgments that are about to, to come, we're going to see that some of them are similar. The first trumpet will be, have a resemblance to the seventh plague. The second trumpet will resemble the first plague of Egypt. And the fourth trumpet will have some resemblance to the ninth plague over the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. So what we're going to see is is these trumpet and bold judgments have purpose. I want you to think about that. They have purpose. Did the plagues in Egypt have purpose? Or was it God just being mean? They had purpose. Extreme purpose to let his people go. And even started off with the softer plagues before getting to the really hard stuff. Why? Because what did he intend to do? What did he give Pharaoh a chance to do? Turn his heart. But what did the Bible say happened? 
Pharaoh did what first? Who hardened their heart first? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart first or did Pharaoh harden his own heart first? I want you to think about this. This is so important. Who hardened their heart first? Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Wouldn't listen. So then he had to feel. Same will happen here. If people don't listen. God wants people to listen and come to him. So there's purpose. This isn't for us to just sit here, go through this and think, oh boy, man, I'm sure I'm glad we're talking about tribulation times and I'm not going to be here for that. That's not the purpose. Remember, it's not to scare us, it's to enlighten us anyway. Whole purpose of revelation and prophecy. Think about this. It's not about looking up and saying, oh man, well God's up there and he just must be wondering what he can do next to punish mankind. Nope, that's not it. What we're going to see here is a defined purpose of precision from a loving God who has to fulfill his promises to purge evil, yes, but inside of that, he's doing it in such a way that he sounds an alarm so people can come to him. That's his desire, that's his heart. But because they haven't listened, they will feel still. It's a lot like a surgical physician who, yes, has to cause some pain to cut you open. But his intention is to remove the evil and to give you life. His love is not reckless, as some may get the wrong impression from the song. His love is intentional. His love is precise. He knows you, he loves you, he created you, and he longs for man to turn to him. We'll list us three purposes of the, of the plagues in Egypt that are similar to the purposes of the trumpets, and then I'm going to list a couple other purposes of, the, of these trumpet judgments before we go through. If you look at three purposes of the plagues in Egypt that are similar to the trumpets, the first one is this. God did those plagues on Egypt to prove that he is sovereign in presence and power. To prove to Pharaoh and all of Egypt that he alone is sovereign, in control, and has all power and authority. He will do the same to the earth in this. He wants to prove to all of mankind that he is sovereign, that his presence is real, and that he has all power and authority. He's in control. That's the purpose. Another, another purpose that's similar. To show the powerlessness of self and other gods to protect them. Think about Pharaoh and all the other gods that they worship. God come to show that not only are they powerless, but their lowercase g gods that they serve are powerless against him and they have no control. So you might say, well, Brad, we don't worship other lowercase g gods really today, do we? Oh, yes, we do. It just may not be in the form of a statue, may not be in the form of a Greek god, but it sure is in the form of science. How many people depend on science to explain and save them and give them answers and hope? It's a God that God will prove is not sovereign. How about technology? Do we worship and depend on technology to save us, to give us wisdom, to give us answers, for us to be superior? Absolutely. God will show that not even technology will save when this time comes, that he alone is there. Third similarity is to show, he wanted to show Pharaoh, show all of mankind that Pharaoh is not in control of the outcome and will not win. Wanted to show all of mankind that Pharaoh is not in control of the outcome and cannot win. So in the trumpet judgments, he wants to show all of mankind that Satan and the Antichrist are not in control of the outcome and they will not win. Do you see some similarities here? 
This isn't just random acts of judgment. And ah, this is purpose. This is purpose. Fulfillment of, of who he is and his plan and trying to turn people in his eyes to his son. Another purpose of these judgments that we'll see with the trumpets and the bowls individually is that they're there to cleanse the earth from the curse. We know from Genesis that even that with sin, the earth was cursed and set into a, an, an, a situation of decay where things don't just stay the same, that there's decay in order. That wasn't the, the case of creation in the Garden of Eden. It's also to purge evil. So in other words, God needs to fulfill his promises, right? This must take place to fulfill his promise. But here is the big glaring purpose of these judgments. You ready? Let me get a drum roll. Ready? What's the big purpose? People will turn their eyes to Jesus, repent, and be converted. It's the big purpose. It takes all the weight off of everything we're about to read. His purpose is to turn people to himself. Because when you don't listen, you must feel. And oftentimes when we feel, when we have the heart attack, when we have the new diagnosis, we'll fall under the authority of that doctor and we'll do that diet. We'll get on that treadmill now, baby. We'll do what we gotta do because I don't wanna feel that no more. But then if we don't, we ignore the warning, bad things happen. All right, we've got the context, we've got the big picture. First plague, first trumpet rather, like the plague. Verse seven, of chapter eight, we're not gonna read it specifically, but we see that it talks about this first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Why don't you think about that? A third of the trees on the earth gone, and all the green grass, all right, at least at this time. We know green grass could probably grow back to some extent, but at least for this point, it's burned up. It's gone and a third of the trees. Why? Hail and fire. This is similar to the seventh plague in Egypt where God rained down hail and fire uh, upon uh, Egypt. Okay, Here it says a third of the trees are gone, all the grass is destroyed, but there's something different here about this one. Okay, That there was something else added in there and it was blood was mingled in. All right, That didn't happen in the plagues on Egypt, so we'll look at that. First, some people try to explain this and, and try to say that this fire was really lightning, and they try to give natural explanation to what we're seeing here. Guys, remember, 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 we're to the point of God's hand now. We don't have to have natural um, explanation for things that are going to occur now, okay? There can be, but it doesn't have to be, all right? I'm sure the people in Egypt weren't trying to sit around and figure out why all the frogs showed up. Well, I guess they just had a really good mating season this year. And I'm like, no, it was God's hand that made that happen. Okay. All right. We don't have to have a natural explanation for things when God's divine hand comes in. Okay. So actually you can point to say this is not lightning because it's a different Greek word. If John meaning to say lightning, he would have used the Greek word for lightning. He uses the word for fire. It's a different word. Okay. This is not a, a natural event. This is a supernatural event. Okay? And when he states blood, some people try to make explanation for that and say, well, there's red rain that, follow, that falls in the Mediterranean area, and that's probably what this is. No. If he, again, wanted to use something for the color red, he would have used the Greek word for red. He uses the Greek word that has the prefix of heme in it where we get our word hemoglobin. It's pointing to actual blood that falls. Why? Well, how does that make sense? Why, why would blood fall? Well, you think about, we talked about all the grass burned up, dried up, whether that was from this fire or whatnot, but also blood is toxic to vegetation. Did you know that? There's some vegetation that can take salt because there's salt in the blood that's around the, the seawaters and stuff, but most vegetation in the inland cannot take salt, all right? So if blood falls on vegetation, it is lethal to it. It kills the vegetation. There you go, okay? So that's where the blood falls in, likely. Second judgment from the trumpet that comes. When the second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is similar, of course, to the first plague in Egypt where the Lord turned the water of the Nile into blood, 
all right? Of course, here we're not talking about just one river. We're talking about across the earth, and a third of it was turned this way, all right? So some people try to, again, naturalize this and, and think about what this is. Who knows what this is? It's something blazing that looks like a mountain. It's not a mountain. It just looks like one. It comes in and, and hits into the sea. A third turns to blood. A third of the living creatures die, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I want you to think about that. So we're talking about some type of impact that causes destruction of even ships that are in the water. Okay? So we see this. The blood may either be the cause or the effect of the widespread casualty we see in the oceans of the world. Okay? So we know what happens to water when, when things go to blood. It, the water turns red. You've seen Shark Week and all this kind of stuff where, where it happens. I don't want to get too gruesome. All right? But the water turned to blood either by cause of God or secondary effect. Regardless, it happens like it says it's going to happen. Third, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. This third trumpet. And the third angel sounded, and the great star fell from heaven. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. So now a third of the rivers, a third of the springs, this is pointing to the fresh water supply where people might get their drinking water, okay? A third of it is being affected, okay? So we have this wormwood that comes on the scene. What is this? If you look at the word wormwood, it's from the Greek word absinthos, absinthos. And it's actually, if you look this up, it's a plant that produces a dark green oil to kill intestinal worms, all right, so back in John's day, they would take this plant and they would mix it with a little water if you felt like you had been infiltrated with worms because like, it wasn't a sanitary society back then, guys. Okay, their water was not like the water we get today. That's why they had to have a wine in, in, in the amounts mixed like we talked about before so that it would kill the bacteria in it. That's why it was drank. Even the kids would drink it. That's why they mixed it. Even 20 parts water to one part wine. Yes, your kids would drink wine back then, okay? But not to get drunk, but to kill the bacteria in the water so that they wouldn't get sick, okay? All right? So we see that this plant was used typically to deworm people, if you will, all right? So in the short term, it had no ill harm effect. But in the long term, if you kept drinking it, it was bitter and it actually would bring death if you drank it long term. So you figure these waters affected by this. So now you have two choices. Either you don't drink and become dehydrated. And of course, you know, you can't last more than a few days like that. Or you drink it. And then over time, the ones who had to drink this, of course, would pass. That's what the Bible's pointing to there. Give some clarity to the scripture. Verse 12 the fourth trumpet says the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine. Think about that. And likewise the night. So this, very similar to the ninth plague in Egypt. Do you see some similarities there? Remember the plague in Egypt caused darkness but God's people had light but the Egyptians did not. Do you remember that account? I don't know whether that's going to be the case for those who are, are coming to the Lord here, whether they'll have light and the rest don't. It doesn't privy us to that part. We can't definitively say that, but we can see some similarities. And it's talking about what this, the sun darkened and the moon and the stars struck and darkened, whether that sun spots on the sun I don't know. You can try to explain it any way you can, but it's going to happen like God says it's going to happen. And here's the ultimate result. That a third of the day will not shine and nor the night. That's talking about the, a third of the daylight. Think about if there was a day where the sun rose at six and set at six. That's 12 hours for those of you who are great at math. All right? So now a third of that, the light wouldn't shine. You can knock off four hours right off of that. So now instead of a 12-hour light day, you only have eight. And we thought daylight saving times were bad. But then it also says a third of the night. 
There's not going to be any light from the sky, stars, the moon, anything. It's going to be pitch black is what will happen. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew chapter 24. Again, the Olivet Discourse, when he said there will become a day where the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So what we've seen here listed, some similarities to some of the plagues from Egypt, but basically the first four of these trumpets bring wrath against a couple things on earth. The means of substance, okay? Think about water, vegetation, that kind of stuff. So the means of substance, and it comes judgments against the means of comfort and things of knowledge such as light and even the very rhythm of days, things that make sense. Can you imagine how that would be an alarm to somebody that there is a God who's in control? (laughs) And maybe I should turn my eyes to him right now. And you see God's grace and mercy in this because do you see the pattern? A third, third, a third, not everything, not all of it. He could have done all of it. That doesn't come to the bold judgments, okay? In his grace, in his mercy, he chooses a third as a warning for people again to come to him. Listen, here, feel a little bit. Now turn to me. So, first four trumpets reveal, even inside his promise and fulfillment of judgment against sin and evil, it reveals his grace and his mercy, his love for people. Before the final curtain drops. So right now, God's going to spare more than he smites. Verse 13 there at the end of chapter 8 says something that we need to look at. It says, and I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, 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 three woes on purpose, to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we have these three woes to come upon next. Why would they say woe to these? Because like I said, what we've seen first are are judgments that basically come upon the earth that secondarily affect mankind. Now we're going to see these last three which will directly affect mankind. Therefore, the woes that are delivered. Let's start in the chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 in chapter 9 as well because we're going to catch the fifth and sixth trumpet here. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a great star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came up on the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's important. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So we see this star that says fallen, and it gives it in the past tense almost, or it had descended or fallen from heaven. This is where some people have a a discussion. Theologians have an arm wrestling match over whether this is a a good angel that God gives authority now to release um, these uh, things from the abyss, okay, at the time for judgment, or whether this was actually a previously fallen angel who God had now given the key for at the right time to do it, okay? arm wrestling match. Don't know that it makes a difference. In in, uh, any case, whether good or evil, they're there to serve God's purpose at the right time, okay? That's just the way you can, can, can look at it and see it, all right? There for that purpose at the right time to allow God's judgment to come across. Again, what's the purpose? Repentance. If you don't listen, you'll feel 
okay? So this locust, these locusts coming out of the abyss, essentially, are we're looking to at our demons, all right? When we look at this word bottomless pit in the Greek, it's the word abusos from abyss, which means it's the prison for demons. You can see that in scripture in many times, okay? So we know that also it's pointing to hell because when it's released, smoke comes out. We know hell is a place of fire and torment, so the smoke comes up and these demons are released, whether they are in literal form. Some people, again, theologians argue, they, oh, these are literal locusts that come and they have kind of demonic powers and features to, to do what God said they're going to do right here. Um, some people say no, that these are metaphorical descriptions of the demonic forces that will come up and do harm to mankind on the earth. Regardless of which way, who knows, we probably can't ever say, but what we can't until that time, but what we can say is God's using it again for people to feel and giving a chance for them to repent. Because you see, it's not going to kill them. It's going to let them hurt. Again, so they feel, so they can hopefully repent and turn to God. All right? So we get this bottomless pit. These locusts come up, all right, to torment and attack. And it's important here. God doesn't cause these demons, whether they're in locust form or demonic form in some other way. God does not cause these demons to act. He simply opens it up and allows them to do what demons naturally do. What's that? Attack and torment people okay but he puts restrictions on them shows God's sovereignty yet again he restricts their their when so when they're released at the right time and even uh, restricts how long says for five months that's where some people point to actual locusts because their time from roughly May to September is five months who knows okay or whether that's just again the picture that John uses for us it tells the who. Who can they affect and who can they not? Who are they not going to affect? Those that have the seal on their forehead. We talked about the 144,000 that were sealed back in chapter 7 there that we looked at. These people will not be affected, but everybody who does not have that seal will be affected. Some people think, well, it's more than the 144,000. As people come to God, their foreheads will be sealed and they'll miss out on the judgment as well. Possibly so. The picture is this. The ones that are sealed by God don't get touched. If you're not sealed, you're getting pain. What is that going to make you want to do? You're either going to hate God and hate those people or you're going to see he's real and he loves people and you're going to want to turn to him. Does that make sense? You see God's hand again trying to turn people's eyes. Look, listen. Come. Man, how much does it take sometimes for us to turn to Jesus? How much sometimes do we have to feel before we repent and surrender and say, Lord, you're Lord of my life? Some of us can be really stubborn and hard-headed. And we're going to see many of these people still are in end times. All right? Again, most demons, of course, are set free. They're, they're loose. They they infiltrate the earth. They, they, they work out the, the enemy's plan on earth, but obviously some of them are held back until a divine moment and purpose to be unleashed. We see that in Scripture right here, plain and simple. This is another point where some people say these are, these are not literal locusts because it, the Bible says in this passage down here lower, it says that they had a king over them. All right? They had a king over them. It's verse 11. It says in the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So we get this Greek and Hebrew name. Why? To show that whether you're Greek or Hebrew or anything, that nobody is absent or, or nobody is restricted from feeling here that God is calling all people to himself. These uh, names in Greek and Hebrew literally mean destruction and destroyer is what they mean in Hebrew and the Greek for sure. All right. So when we look at this word seek here, it says men will seek out death. I want you to think about that, but they won't be able to find it. This Greek word seek means literally to think about or to dwell on. 
So think about that when, when, when something consumes you so much, but it'll be absent from you. Plus it points to the idea that, that death as an escape is a demonic deception. I want you to think about that. How many people think that ending it all will just end the pain? That's a demonic deception. When God is using this to say, now is the time for repentance, to turn to him and be restored. So again, who knows what these locusts will be, but we can be sure that they're used at a specific time and they're demonic in influence coming from the abyss and they're used in God's plan to bring people to himself and also to fulfill his promise on earth. Here's also what it points to because we're gonna see this at the end. The more we reject God's call for repentance, the harder our heart will become. The more we reject God's call for us to repent, the harder our heart will become. We saw that in Pharaoh, didn't we? We've been talking about that and looking at these plagues. The, when after Pharaoh hardened his heart, wouldn't listen, didn't listen, then it says, and God hardened his heart. And that's a scary place to be, all right? We see this also, and if we jump ahead just a little bit, just to read this passage, Revelation 16, verses 10 through 11. I want you to see, read, and hear this passage. This is talking about when the bowl judgments will come out. I want you to listen to this. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. They knew the cause. They, they knew what was going on. And instead of turning to God, they blasphemed him. They cursed him and didn't repent. Why? Because their hearts were hard. They had rejected him so much for so long that their hearts became angry when they heard about God. You ever seen people that they become angry? They don't want to hear God's word. They become angry. They, 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 they run away. They, they walk away. They don't want to hear it. Their hearts have become hard to truth. Sixth seal, here in chapter nine. Starting in there in verse 13. And we see this, six angels sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. What is that talking about? Well, First, when you break it down, you look at these four bound angels. Obviously, angels, any angel that is bound is not free is a fallen angel. Has to be, all right? God's angels are not bound, all right? That, that they follow God's plan, but they are free. These are bound angels waiting for this moment in time to be released, okay? Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. That points to this as well. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. All right? So we know that there is some truth to this, that some are bound into the, uh, and delivered into a, an abyss, and some are chained ready for God's timing and reserved for judgment at the end. This Euphrates River is important because it borders the promised land, the promised land that, the land that was promised to Abraham, okay? It also separated Israel back in the Bible times from their enemies, Syria and Babylon, okay? So it was a, a divider of protection. So now this gives the idea of releasing, okay, for something to come across as an attack. Of course, this attack isn't just against Israel here. It's, this is a judgment across all of mankind, but you get the picture in biblical terms of something coming across the Euphrates, all right, against people, all right? So we have this um, idea of being dispatched, God using nations, 
right here for judgment because we see very specifically it talked about four angels, but then it switched and says, now I saw the number of the army. What are you talking about? And it says horsemen. It doesn't talk angels, demons, stars, anything like that. It says horsemen. These are people. And it says 200 million. I heard the number of them. So now we see an army that's being dispatched, all right, for God's judgment. We know this is common. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. I mean, we've seen Babylonians that God used to come against Israel and and take them into captivity. This passage points to Assyrians. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 through 7 says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. All right, when they come against Israel. I dispatched him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Get this. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. So God uses that for his purpose. Do you see that? Old Testament and new. So here, in this situation, we see this idea of a 200 million man army that's going to come and destroy, and the Bible's very clear. How much? It says they'll take out a third of the population. A third of mankind. That's verse 18. It says, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. Once you think about that, 200 million man army. If you look at that number, that seems pretty impossible, doesn't it? I mean, when you, when you look at other numbers and you compare them, how many people are in the United States of America? Does anybody know? About 330 million, all right? There's no way we could form a 200 million man army, is there? I mean, that'd be a majority of the world going the battle of our, of our nation, all right? If you look at all the armies combined of World War II, that was total around 70 million soldiers of all of them combined. Think about that. Here's a number three times that in total from from one nation. How could this be? 1965, the general of China said they had the capability of producing a 200 million man army. Did you know that? That was in 1965. Wonder what they could do now. If you look at the population of China, the most populated nation in our world is sitting at 1.42 billion people. 1.42 billion people in China. Again, 330 million only in US. 1.42 billion in China. We see the, the, cap- the capability. Neighboring nation in in India has almost 1.4 billion people in their nation. So we're seeing a large part of a population of the whole earth right over there in that eastern side. Another thing the Bible points to is that the idea of this invasion from the east toward the west. Remember, think about that Euphrates. Israel's on the western side. Euphrates divides from Assyria and Babylon at the time. So any attack from them would always come from the east to the west. Does that make sense? So now we're seeing a picture. If we're looking at pointing to China, able to make a 200 million man army, which they've claimed they can do, and they certainly have the population to do so, we see they're in the east, and it represents that biblical way of coming toward the west, okay? So what's John describing here? Well, first of all, we say a third of the earth's population. How many people were talking at this time? We know a lot of people have already passed in the seal judgments. We saw a quarter of the population die in that uh, fourth seal. So what are we looking at now? Well, if you go by population standards, by in about 10, 12 years from now, we'll be at roughly 9 billion people on the planet. All right, so let's say the rapture occurs at that time. And let's say generously that a billion people are saved and go up in the rapture. That would be pretty generous. That means one in nine people on earth are saved. I doubt it's that high. I hope it is. But let's just say it is out of generosity. So a billion are raptured. That leaves you 8 billion people on earth, okay? And a quarter die in the fourth seal. You're down to 6 billion. We know some other people pass, but if you keep the number around, now a third die. So you're talking about roughly another 2 billion people, okay? So in general, 4 billion since the start of the tribulation will die here up to this point. That is significant, guys. 
That's significant. And it's sad. So what's John describing? As best he can, he's describing a 21st century army in first century terms. That's what he's describing. And we look at that as like a horse, of course, was usually what they rode. And, and, the, and, and would the horse have armor? Not necessarily the riders would have armor, but he's describing a horse with armor. That's what a person rides on. You think about a, a horse with armor that a person rides on today, what are you thinking? Tanks, ships, trucks, metal, fortitude like that, okay, coming on the attack. And usually what we would ride into battle with, but not what they would ride into battle with at the day. So he's describing it as best he can. So there's a head of a lion that shows that it's, it shows its fearfulness, all right, and its ability to devour. You talk about the fire and everything that comes and destroys these people, the fire, the smoke, the brimstone. You talk about the fire of, of missiles, rockets, gunfire, the smoke that happens, the brimstone um, effect from the, the melting if nuclear weapons are used and stuff of that nature on society by which all people will pass. And John's trying to describe that here the best way he can. And he says something interesting. It says the tail of which would also have some fury, all right? The power's in their mouth and in their tails. What would be the tail that you would look at in terms of looking at 21st century army? Well, you can look at a lot of things, but how about the men coming behind it? If you've ever seen um, uh, Saving Private Ryan or, or things like that, when, when tanks and armies would come against a, a town or something to, to uh, overtake, the tanks would lead the way and the infantry behind it as they go, so to speak, okay? Regardless of what that's pointing to or not, who knows, but we can rest assured it's gonna happen, okay? Regardless of how. Here's the, here's the beautiful specificity of God. This won't happen until a certain hour, day, month, year. God knows the time and when the time needs to occur, and he's in control. We'll close this up right now with this end of this chapter nine. And right here in verses 20 and 21, it says this. And this is where you get back to the heart of what we just talked about all through chapter eight and nine. Remember how we started? But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And that's a solemn statement. That even when some felt their hearts were too hard to repent and turn to God, when God is trying to get men to turn to him. This list of sin that men would not repent from gives a striking accusation against our present age, doesn't it? When you read all that and a lot of what's going on in our world today is characterized by murders, sorceries. Think about a pharmacy associated with taking drugs and all the deception around that, sexual immorality and thefts. But men would not repent. They wouldn't take God up on his offer to turn. So I want you to think about that as we close right here. Picture yourself in a place of financial debt, extreme financial debt, debt so overwhelming that you can never pay it off. There's no hope. The only hope would be for you to claim bankruptcy Right, and then feel the effects of bankruptcy where you can't get a credit card, you can't get a loan, you can't do anything much in society like you used to be able to do. And you were bankrupt to the point of all hope was gone. But somebody stepped in and said, hey, don't worry. I got this. I've got you. And they offered this to you. I'm gonna pay off all your debt 
And I'm going to leave you some money even to live on so you have some hope. And I just want to do this for you because I love you. And I got a new plan for you. I think I'm going to set you free here to live free. Would you accept that? I mean, put yourself in that situation. If you were that bad in debt, about to claim bankruptcy, and somebody just stepped in, said, hey, you don't have to do anything first. All I need you to do is say yes and accept this free gift. I'm going to pay off all your debt. You don't have to raise your hand. Would anybody reject that and say no? There's not one person on this earth that was in financial bankruptcy. If somebody came to pay it off, would say no. Then why do we say no to our spiritual bankruptcy? When Jesus come and paid it all to set us free. Who would want to reject the gift of financial freedom to feel the pain of bankruptcy and defeat and lost hope out of stubbornness and pride? But how many times do we or people we go to school with, work with, and do life with do that every day and reject the one who made a way? He laid down his life, he broke his body, he shed his blood so that we could be set free. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus went to that cross, he saw you. So that now when God looks at Jesus, looks at you rather, all he sees is Jesus. That's the gift of the gospel, that's the gift of substitution. He took your place to set you free and to give you a new life. Why would you turn away from that? Turn your eyes to Jesus. Let's close. I wonder if there's anybody here, you might say, Brad, right now I need to turn my eyes to Jesus. I haven't done that like I should. And I'm ready to repent and come to him to receive his free gift that he paid my price. If that's you, I want to lead you through a prayer from your heart to God's heart and do business with God here in just a minute. Or if you're here and you said, Brad, I've, I've walked in and out of church doors. I've even committed my life to Christ earlier, but, but man, I, lately I haven't walked with him. I've deviated. I've strayed. I want to come running back to the cross like the prodigal son, and I want to give my life to Jesus right now, rededicate my life, and be on fire for him. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do business with God in the same way and pray this prayer from your heart to God's heart and rededicate your life, trusting and knowing that it's not a prayer that saves you. It's not magic words. It's not. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says it's with your heart that you believe it are justified. And if that's the case, then it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Will you do that right now with your heart just open before God and just say right now, just say, dear God, I admit to you, that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Lord, for this time in my life, I've been living for myself, for the things of this world, and it separated me from you. And I want to break my pride, humble myself, and lay down my life at the foot of the cross. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the spotless lamb, to break his body, to shed his blood, that I could be forgiven. And then three days later, to raise from the grave, proving that he is God and that he stands right now in all victory over hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to stand in victory with you. Lord, right now I need it. Lord, my commitment to you is that every step that I take and every breath that I make will be for you, and for your glory alone. Amen. If you did business with God right there, this moment, no one looking around, you accepted him for the first time, or you rededicated your life boldly and unashamed, I just want you to raise your hand and say, Brad, I did business with God right here today, and I'm not ashamed, and I'm making a stand. 
Amen. Impact Church, can we give Jesus a big round of applause? He deserves it. His word. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven and I will hear their land. <laughs> I wonder if we can go seek him every day. See, here's the beautiful part about the presence of God. Some people think they have to go to that auditorium in Kentucky to experience the presence of God. That's scary. Some people are asking, should I take the trip? Is it worth the trip? I'd say yes. It's worth the trip to your own knees where you are to experience the presence of God where you're at. Let us not worship a certain place. Let us worship the God of the place that's being glorified. You can experience revival in your life, your heart, this church, this community right here, right now. Let's be people that seek him. Let's be people that turn from the patterns of this world and transform our minds through him and his word. That's revival. Seek him, people, seek him. The Lord's looking for a few good men and women who will seek him and stand for him. We're seeing that in Asbury. He wants to see it everywhere. How about right here? Love it. So let's grab some people. Let's bring them to church. But more than that, let's go be the church. (laughs) Let's go reach people where we're at for the cause of Christ. We'll take this word this week. Let's go make an impact knowing that if we don't, don't listen, there's coming a time where we'll feel. Right now, all that wrath is put up on Jesus. We don't have to feel any of it. You'll never have to feel any of it if you put your life in him. Let's pray for those that don't know him. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ.